Welcome to the Let's Think Podcast, where we don't just react. We'll break it down and think about it. We're going to talk news, sports, whatever we're thinking about. As always, you can contribute by sending email to comments at letsthinkpodcast.com. We're your hosts, Ed Yeager and Lee Allen. Lee, how are you doing tonight, my friend? Doing well. How are you? I am good. Good. I think where we left off last week was that we made some Masters predictions. Uh, two people I predicted, Dustin Johnson and Roy McIlroy, neither one even made the cut. But you, you had it nailed just about. Uh, well, at least with one, my one of mine missed the cut, but the second one uh, um, did fairly well. Um, good old Will Valatoris, Wake Forest kid, to finish second. Uh, you called him a dark horse, and he yeah. came in second. Yeah. Um, he's been on a roll, and uh, he hits a ball a long way, and he's fearless, and I just thought it, you know, it was his time perhaps, and he was, uh, he was on a roll. So that's, that's why I picked him. Cool. Right. I, I see where Matsuyama doesn't, you know, he doesn't speak English very well, apparently. Right. He clearly understands it because if you noticed, he, he, he'll answer a question. He'll start answering a question before the interpreter says it, repeats it in Japanese. So, um, But I saw uh, somebody was saying that if he took his interpreter to the champion's dinner next year, um, that it would be the first time that uh, there had ever been a non-champion attending the champion's dinner as anything other than a, a waiter or a bartender. Interesting um, trivia. So, yeah, that was pretty interesting. It'll also be interesting to see what he chooses to serve. It will. You see the pictures of him in the airport in Atlanta on early Monday morning with the green jacket? No, I didn't see that. Yeah, he's. Uh, they got him walking through the airport, and he's he's pulling a cart, you know, a, I say a cart, a, a piece of luggage, and he's got a backpack uh, on his shoulder, and he's got the green jacket outside the backpack or outside the luggage or on his arm, and then they show him sitting in a uh, at a gate, and he's got it on the chair beside him as he's, uh, you know, uh, typing away on his phone. I'm not sure why he didn't have it on, but hey, I wouldn't put it up either. Guess he didn't want to put it in the check bag. Absolutely not. Well, one of the big stories over the last week has to be the uh, the president's executive order creating a presidential commission on the Supreme Court of the United States. Some have labeled it court packing. Uh, as lawyers, I think uh, this is something that's kind of in our wheelhouse, and uh, as his history buff, something that we can talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have to say that this was an issue that was hinted at during the campaign. It came up numerous times. Uh, Biden, as a candidate, took almost no position. Um, he just kept saying, well, we'll think about that later. And then at one point, he floated this idea of a commission, but never took a hard stance. Uh, in fact, one uh, quote that I saw in the Wall Street Journal this week was that Democrats had a meltdown over Donald Trump's three high court appointees. And Mr. Biden's commission idea was a way to appease progressives and avoid taking a firm position during the 2020 campaign. So now he's put in place this commission. They've got 180 days to study various aspects of the Supreme Court and come back with a report. What are your thoughts about that? I I guess I thought it was sort of a cowardly uh, thing to refuse to take a position during the campaign, even though I think most observers and commentators had uh, some notion that um, Biden, if, if for no other reason than to um, throw a bone to his base, would be would ultimately come out in favor of expanding the, the, the size of the Supreme Court. Um, and, and I, I think, um, well, let me back up, I guess, you know, just just to throw it out there, you know, the um, the size of the Supreme Court is determined by statute. And it's not always been nine. It's been various numbers for at various times. In fact, it's been as many as ten. And, of course, ten is an, an even number, so that, that can lead to other issues. But for the last, I don't know, you may know, maybe 100 years or so, it's been nine. Actually, it's since 1869. The Judiciary okay. Act of 1869 established a chief and eight associate justices. Okay. Um, and so um, I, I think I, I my initial reaction, Ed, was... 
um, when I saw the 180 days, that puts us into October. He can extend that with a, with a pin. I, I wonder if he is sort of throwing a bone to the base by saying we'll talk about it with the firm understanding and, and even hope on his part that nothing's going to get done this year, which puts us into 2022, which is an election year, and it's not going to get done then. And so he doesn't have this issue come up in the 2022 campaign for uh, however many uh, Senate seats there may be up in 2022 in the House. Uh, so as a means to kind of blunt some of what um, Republicans plan to use against him. Um, and, and just as a way to kind of kill it without him coming out and saying, we can't do this now, or I don't want to do this now, that kind of thing. That was my initial reaction. And I'm not sure I, I don't still feel that way. Um, I think that it is a, it's a, it's a pretty big task and I'm not sure he's going to get, um, he clearly can get it passed in the house, maybe in the Senate. Um, you know, the last I saw Joe Manchin was waffling and kind of back and forth and I don't know, I didn't have time to check. Uh, I don't know whether he's actually come out and said yay or nay yet. Um, I have not seen a comment from him on this. Of course, there's been a lot of pressure on him uh, as to where he would stand on changes to the filibuster. Right, and 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 he got, his wife got a job from the administration and right um, the past uh, couple of weeks. Um, but I, I just and, and it might pass. I, I don't know, but um, I, I have a feeling that um, that if they can't get it done, and I don't, I don't, I wouldn't see it passing in in the late fall. Um, I, it seems like if he's going to do it, he needed to do it this this spring, this summer, um, while he's got his sort of his momentum from November and and he's got his his numbers in into Congress. Because I, I you know, if history is any precedent, um, he won't have his numbers after November twenty twenty two. I agree with you that it's a play to his progressive, uh, his left wing that he's got yeah. to do something. Uh, I saw a quote uh, from the New York Times uh, this week. There's a group called Take Back the Court, and their director says that the Supreme Court poses a danger to the health and well-being of the nation and to democracy itself. For those of us who think like I do, that group is um, not not a group we would agree with um, on much, if anything. Well, there are 36 members appointed. I went through all of their bios. And I can say that it's a, it's a pretty liberal group as far as I can tell. A lot of law professors. Um, Harvard University and the other Ivy League schools are pretty highly uh, represented among the group. I would imagine that they are. Any names that uh, jump out at you? Uh, well, you know, there was a, a couple of names. Um, the ones who might be, uh, or who the media considered might be conservatives, I uh, included Michael Ramsey, who's a former Scalia clerk, former appellate judge Thomas Griffith, who was a Bush appointee. But, you know, you really can't tell by which president appointed someone as to how right. conservative they might be. Uh, one name, just because of the name itself, was Kermit Roosevelt III, who's appointed to serve on the commission. Is he a grandson or a great-grandson? He is a great-grandson. Okay. And, you know, with the Bush appointees, even if conservative, you don't know sort of the 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 fundamentals of their conservatism and 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 how they approach those kind of issues and whether or not you know they're uh, sort of from the uh, Scalia camp uh, or the um, that you know or or if they're just more of the um, Eastern establishment old school country club Republicans whatever pejorative term you like well and in fact I read that this particular appointee Judge Griffith had worked to ban members of the Federalist Society from the Judicial Conference. So that speaks to kind of his wow. moderate nature. I, I, and I'm looking at Kermit Roosevelt right here, and he is a registered Democrat. He is the great-great-grandson of Theodore and a cousin of Franklin, of course. And he's 49 years old. He was educated at Harvard and Yale Law School. And he's currently a law professor at the University of Pennsylvania. Yeah. 
It, it reminds me of a William F. Buckley quote that he'd rather be governed by the first thousand people in the Cambridge phone book than the faculty at Harvard. Indeed. And I sometimes wonder what um, Mr. Buckley would would think um, now that um, our, our party, if you will, is at what seems to be a crossroads between the the, the Trump faction and the more traditional uh, Republican factions, where, where Mr. Buckley would come down. He One is, other aspect of this story that I don't want to let pass, though, is the historical piece, um, because it's been mentioned a few times that Franklin Roosevelt tried to add justices to the court. He did. Uh, and I think it's important to note why, because... A lot of people forget, but the U.S. Constitution is a constitution of limited powers, and there is an expectation that the federal government can't just do anything they want to do. When Franklin Roosevelt was elected, he tried to push through legislation which the court was frequently striking down. Yes, the four horsemen were his his uh, his nemesis. So his solution to that was the. Uh, uh, Judicial Procedures Reform Bill of 1937 that would allow him to appoint another justice for everyone on the court who was more than 70 and a half years old. Because with the exception of Brandeis, the the others who were above that age were the conservatives who were uh, basically um, striking down all, a, a, a good portion of the New Deal legislation. Surely that's just a coincidence. Uh, I'm sure it was, yes. I'm sure it was. And, uh, you know, the interesting... Uh, part to that is a Senate majority leader at that time that um, right before he proposed the court packing plan um, ended up dying that summer Um, and he had been promised a spot on the Supreme Court and that's when he died unexpectedly that started a number of of things rolling, and they ended up stuck. Uh, the 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 four horsemen, um, as they were known, it's uh, Van Deventer, McReynolds, Sutherland, Van Deventer, and Pierce Butler were the were known as the four horsemen. And then you had the three musketeers, who were Brandeis, Cardoza, and Harlan Stone. They were the liberals, and then. Um, Owen Roberts, who was appointed by um, a Republican, um, was the swing vote. That sounds familiar. Yeah. And basically where he went sort of determined the outcome of the case. He was appointed and confirmed by Herbert Hoover in 1930. And the interesting thing is he replaced a man named Edward Terry Sanford, who died in office. Hoover appointed John Parker whom you know as a North Carolinian from Concord, whose brother was awarded a Medal of Honor in World War I, Eli uh, Eli Parker, um, Sam Ely Parker. But John Parker was a longtime jurist in this state who was, I think it's fair to say, universally admired, and he was a Republican, even though he was from from the South, from North Carolina in the 20s and 30s. Um, and he was not confirmed um, because of some, I think, really some other political issues. He sort of paid the price for some things that really weren't, he didn't have anything to do with. Um, and when he wasn't confirmed, uh, Hoover then appointed Owen Roberts. There was a, um, a state minimum wage law in a case called West Coast Hotel versus Parish, and it was in 1937. Uh, the state of Washington enacted a minimum wage law for women, and it was struck down. And the case wound its way to the Supreme Court. Um, there was a prior case called Atkins versus Children's Hospital, which was a 1923 case. Um, that had um, held that state minimum wage laws were unconstitutional. And that's known, there was a, during the period when the, 
when the court was striking down these sort of progressive and then what became New Deal legislative efforts in the both in the Congress and in the states, there was a famous case called Lochner, uh, L-O-C-H-N-E-R, and that 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 was the I guess the status quo, so to speak, within the within the federal courts, and this um, this case made it to the Supreme Court at the time of the court packing controversy, and it was controversial. Uh, Roosevelt thought that he would have this passed pretty pretty easily. Um, Justice Louis Brandeis, who was uh, I think it's fair to say a favorite of Roosevelt and whom Roosevelt referred to as old Isaiah because of his flowing white mane and his age uh, came out very strongly against the court packing plan um, and made a, uh, had an appearance before the, uh, the Senate judiciary committee during uh, their uh, time marking up the bill. Um, but was just, um, very powerful in his opposition. So all that's going on. This case comes up. And Owen Roberts, Republican, votes with the liberals to uphold this minimum wage law for women in the state of Washington. And it became known as the switch in time that did save nine, or that would save nine. Because when that happened, and then Brandeis uh, voted to um, or, or, or was opposed, it gave some cover to uh, some people in the, in the uh, principally in the Senate to vote against the court packing plan, and it died there. And Owen Roberts is now pretty much remembered only for the switch in time that saved nine. It's um, not really been, as far as I know, uh, an issue uh, since, until now. Uh, I'm not aware of any sort of substantive or, or or any sort of effort to add justices to the Supreme Court that's gotten anywhere. You know, their, their caseload has gone down substantially uh, over the last even 20 years. Um, they don't hear a lot of cases they don't. every year. They, they pretty much don't hear anything. They don't have to. No. Um, and they look, uh, frankly, in my opinion, they look for, what, for, for ways not to hear cases. Um, and that's not always bad. Um, but uh, I think the public would be astounded at the actual number of cases that they hear um, now versus what they heard 50, 60 years ago. No, it's very low. It's very low. And um, I'm not aware of any uh, grassroots movement to add justices before this. And frankly, I think this can be attributed to the fact that President Trump got three appointees to the court. Absolutely, dude. This is this is a, 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 a reaction to that. That's that's all it is. Uh, but for that, this would never have have come up. Well, that and lingering Democrat anger that Merrick Garland didn't get his hearing back in uh, 2016. Even though we have uh, then Senator and Chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee Biden. Uh, for which the rule is known as the Biden rule, and that is um, a president um, who is not uh, in the of the party uh, that controls the Senate uh, doesn't get to replace a Supreme Court justice when there's a vacancy during a presidential election year. He's conveniently forgotten that. Yes, he has. As he's and forgotten so many other and, things. And so have the Democrats, um, it, it, particularly in the Senate. One other lesson, though, from Roosevelt's efforts were that while his legislative plan failed, the Supreme Court certainly eased up on their definition of the Interstate Commerce Clause, and lots of his efforts to deal with economic recovery passed the court after that. Absolutely. There's almost, when with the reading, the interpretation of the Interstate Commerce Clause that, as you said, kind of... Um, sprouted from whole cloth to mix metaphors um in the in that in that time there's nothing that that our supreme court or almost nothing that our supreme court feels is off limits to the federal government the uh, 10th and 11th amendments to the constitution notwithstanding um it's 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 a very expansive reading of the commerce clause our courts have allowed that to expand greatly 
the reach of the federal government and the reach of the federal administrative state. Some of us are troubled by that. Um, and that's not to say that there haven't been some pieces of legislation that haven't a- accomplished some, you know, some things that are good, but I'm not sure that they're constitutional. Well, that's a pertinent question for our time now, I think, because the idea should be that the U.S. government, the federal government, can't become involved in just anything because they can pass it through Congress. That's right. States should have power, and that that's an idea that's uh, just been lost at this point. I, I think uh, federalism is um, it's almost dead, the idea of it. And, you know, we don't teach civics in school anymore. So there, there are a lot of people out there that the, the concept of federalism is completely foreign to them. And they look to the federal government as the first source of relief, as the first the first step in changing things. And, of course, you know, when you read the Constitution, as you said, the federal government is a government of very limited powers. It has, you know, a, a, a huge amount of power when it when it's authorized, but those are not supposed to be everyday sort of normal mundane issues for most people that they have to deal with the federal government right um you know and they have the with the individual income tax as a result of the the 13th amendment or not the the 18th amendment whatever it was um the government has plenty of money it prints what it doesn't collect via taxes and it spends on just an unbelievable number of things most of which would turn the stomach of of the average and ordinary person who happens to to learn of it. But the problem is they don't learn of it. You know, they just accept it, don't care, whatever. And the government's just spending money like there's no tomorrow. One other thing that was notable to me from the executive order by its absence was that there was no discussion of other lower courts. Uh, when Biden did speak about this during the campaign, he talked about, you know, perhaps ju- justices should come up from other courts. Perhaps there should be overall change, blah, blah, blah. Uh, there is nothing in there to address circuit court appointments or to expand the circuit courts. This is clearly a political act aimed directly at the Supreme Court. Yeah, I would think that um, if there is a, a, a crunch, if you will, in the federal court system, it would be at the lower court level. Um, and I'm sure there probably are some courts there that um, are overworked um, and have a, have a backlog of cases. And you're, you know, you're right, it just that doesn't come up. But there are not a lot of vacancies because uh, Trump appointed and the Senate confirmed dozens of nominees to fill those vacancies yeah when when the political scientists look and the historians look at the trump presidency or the trump first term whatever it turns out to be you know 25 50 years from now i think that will be um the biggest and most most uh have the most effect um the the biggest uh legacy if you will of the trump presidency will be the the district and, and circuit judges that he got confirmed um and and i suppose uh, he and mitch mcconnell got confirmed and, no in uh, fact i think there is a i think there's a good argument that if if uh mcconnell had not taken the actions that he did in 2016 with the garland appointment that that seat would not have been a national issue which candidate Trump was able to use so effectively in the campaign. Right, and his, his, um, his list, you know, that he bandied about in the 2016 campaign where he said— And that would be his list of potential candidates that he said he would choose from. Exactly. The list changed a couple of times, but the idea was transparency. These are the folks that I'll put on the court if there's a vacancy. And, and then, in fact, when there were vacancies, he used that list. And and then what that allowed him to do was to say, I have a mandate. You know, the, the, the people had an opportunity to know this 
and they voted for me and elected me. Therefore, I, 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 you know, they've blessed my picks. And I think that was extremely effective. I think it was probably one of the wiser political things that the Trump campaigns, uh, either one, did. Um, it was masterful. So we'll continue to monitor this. Uh, we've, we've got 180 days, apparently, for the commission to release their report, although that could change this summer because there's currently pressure being put on Justice Breyer to resign or to retire and uh, let the president choose his successor now. Uh, I don't, it doesn't sound like he's uh, uh, interested in doing that, but I guess we'll find out later. Yes, I, I found that was found that to be quite interesting. I guess uh, Justice Breyer's in his early to mid eighties. Um, he may be the oldest member of the court uh, now, but um, the uh, the liberal progressive wing would very much like to replace him with a similarly uh, inclined justice who's much younger and would. Uh, uh, I guess the idea would be around longer, and his uh, tenure would last uh, several decades uh, beyond what Justice Breyer may ultimately serve. And perhaps it's a historic parallel to Brandeis, but um, Breyer came out this week to talk about the court's structure needing to say the stay the same for there to continue to have trust of the public. Yeah, that's a. I think that's a comforting idea that. Um, the Supreme Court, members of the Supreme Court who are somewhat removed by life tenure from from uh, sort of your base everyday politics, um, they do have a, a feeling of uh, responsibility and even, I guess, ownership of the institution that is the Supreme Court and the, the, um, uh, the, the, the manner in which the American people or the esteem with which the American people hold the Supreme Court. And I, I think that uh, that's, um, that's to their credit that, uh, that they do that. And I, I was glad to see Justice Breyer have those concerns. I think that's important. The other big issue which came out of the White House since we talked last were these actions on gun control. Uh, clearly another pet issue of the left they would want to push Biden into. Uh, a couple of comments on that. First, I, I noted that the White House fact sheet calls gun violence a public health epidemic. Uh, and so, you know, that sent me to a couple of dictionaries to look up epidemic because I don't know what makes this a public health crisis uh, other than it's something bad. And so if it's bad, let's call it an epidemic. Right. Uh, as they've done with uh, racism, calling that a public health crisis recently. Uh, it also makes it hard to criticize it later when they uh, suggest really crazy policy proposals. And I, I don't know if this is if this is an epidemic. I don't know what you would call the situation at the border. The definition of epidemic, though, does include a sudden widespread occurrence of a particular undesirable phenomenon. And so, you know, yeah, gun violence, it's certainly undesirable. That's for sure. But we can disagree on what causes it. So I also read the six proposals from the White House, which are, I guess, either an appointment as ATF director or other executive actions. And they basically don't add up to a great deal. They want to create a rule against ghost guns within 30 days. Why don't you explain what a ghost gun is, Ed? Well, a ghost gun is one that is at least in part homemade. Uh, typically, when a firearm is produced in a uh, commercial factory, it's stamped with a serial number, and that serial number goes into a database that can be traced from the manufacturer to the seller, which will be a uh, federally licensed firearm dealer, to a purchaser. It's also possible for someone to buy a receiver, which is the lower portion of a gun, Online, and they call it an 80% rule that you can buy basically 80% that way. And then there's no serial number on that on, on many of those parts. And then they can buy other parts from various places. They can assemble a gun at home or in their backyard right. garage. Of course, a, a different 
situation now, which would also kind of fall under the definition of ghost guns, has to do with 3D printing and the possibility of printing parts for a gun through your home computer. Now, the issue with ghost guns, according to the, the gun control advocates, is that you can't track those because they don't have serial numbers. That doesn't, doesn't mean it's legal to use them to commit crimes, however. Uh, and in fact, there aren't a, a great deal of notable shootings that have occurred with ghost guns. Although in my research, I found a few. There oh, did have you? been a few. But also, there was no evidence from those uh, actions that any type of serial number would have made a difference to prevent it. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things I've always said is if, if we can pass a, a law and that's going to make a difference, why don't we just outlaw crime? But uh, that doesn't <laughs> seem to have been so helpful. <laughs> the the criminal loophole to gun laws is, uh, is something that uh, our friends from the left conveniently forget. And, and that's the problem with these laws, these executive actions, is they affect you and me, but criminals don't pay any attention to them. Right. The other the other executive actions are basically pushing Department of Justice to do certain things, uh, all of which more or less fall into the category of rules. So within 60 days, DOJ is going to come up with a definition of what a stabilizing brace is to turn a handgun into a rifle. Not sure how often that matters in crime. Uh, very rarely. 60 to, yeah, very rarely. Within 60 days, DOJ will come with a model red flag rule, which states can adopt. Well, some states already have red flag rules. If other states wanted to adopt theirs, they, they've got a model out there. And then there's going to be some federal investment in uh, what they call evidence-based community violence interventions. So basically millions of dollars to job training and job education webinars and toolkits for the states on how to collect money to uh, create violence intervention programs. Right. And, of course, the red flag laws are efforts, or or they allow efforts by law enforcement or citizens who report people to law enforcement um, that result in gun owners having their weapons taken with basically no due process and then you have to go and show why you should get them back so i could call the mecklenburg county sheriff's office and say ed yeager threatened to harm himself with his gun and then if that were there were such a law in this state they would go and seize your weapons and you'd have to go to court and show that that that, that didn't happen prove a negative uh, it's a real burden shifting impossibility it, it is and um it's it's a it's a recipe for revenge and things like that to uh, to to mess with the people's lives. It's not going to do anything other than make uh, things difficult for lawful gun owners. Um, you know there are already rules and laws that say folks that are that have mental mental illness and so forth. Uh, to that extent, can't possess firearms anyway. And we saw that, uh, we've seen that uh, just just recently here with uh, the, the Hunter Biden, who very obviously lied on his handgun permit application uh, as to his ability to lawfully possess a firearm, a handgun, um, and his father wants to punish you and me and hamper our, hamper our abilities to uh, possess firearms. But there are laws on the books that relate to Hunter that he violated, and nobody's doing anything about it because he's he's uh, a leftist and he's the president's son, and that gets us back to this idea of you know two standards of justice, one for elite leftists and one for everybody else. Yeah, you know, and the other thing the president did was appoint a new director of ATF, and I know that's something you want to talk about. That I'll get to that in just a moment, but what you just hit on is an absence from anything the White House has put out. I read every article I could find. I read the executive order, the fact sheet, and nowhere while they're directing the Department of Justice do they talk about prosecuting criminals. They don't go after people who've lied on their uh, purchase forms. They don't go after uh, felons in possession of firearms or other criminals out there, which could actually make a difference in the level of violence on the street. Absolutely. 
both in terms of specific deterrence of those people and also the more general deterrence of other people similarly situated who might say, I don't want to go to prison for 10 years. I think I'll refrain. Um, and but that doesn't that that's not in their um, in their purview. I mean, they just they don't they don't think like that. So they want to pass laws and you and I will comply, but criminals won't. And criminals end up with guns and, and we won't have them. Um, but I suppose these do-gooders will uh, think well of themselves and they'll go to their wine and cheese parties and talk about each other and, and say good things and have positive thoughts with rainbows and unicorns and all that dancing through their heads. But the reality is the murder rate in this country is up over 33% in the last year. That's the highest jump ever. And that comes with, uh, in large part, uh, in my opinion, to this notion of defunding the police, um, which has not only reduced the number of officers, but it has also hamstrung the abilities of these departments to fill its ranks, even if they're going, when they're going to hire people with qualified uh, folks who would would be good police officers because, face it, dude, would you want to be a police officer in Minneapolis right now? Absolutely not. It's got to be devastating for the morale of law enforcement officers across the country. It does. And then you see these these other silly laws, uh, no cash bail, and, and we're not going to prosecute for um, lower-level crimes. So if you're arrested and, and charged with a lower-level crime, the George Soros-funded district attorneys out there are not going to prosecute you, as we've seen in San Francisco and other places, which basically say to, to people, you, you have carte blanche to break the law. And then we had Rashida Tlaib this week say that we ought to do away with policing, do away with prisons, do away with, with all of this. And, of course, she lives um, in, a, in a place where she can get away from crime. She works in a place where... It's, it's Fort Pelosi right now. I mean, there's barbed wire, there are fences, there are armed troops uh, keeping her safe. But most people don't live like that. And, you know, we need law and order to function in order to have a civilization. Um, but these leftist academics and so forth forgot their common sense. When I came out of law school, there was this crusty old district court judge who I heard him say this more than once. And at the time, I thought he was kind of crazy. I thought he was just cynical. But he said, you know, it's going to come a day when we're just going to put big walls up around large parts of our community. And we're going to say, do anything you want to in there. We're not even going to bother trying to police it. They're going to be but no come out, Yeah, but if you come outside that wall, you're going to have to follow the rules. And that's sad. It is. But but I want to touch on this ATF nominee, David okay. Chipman, mm-hmm. uh, former special agent, apparently spent 25 years as an agent with uh, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms, was involved in some controversial actions there, including Waco and Ruby Ridge. Since then, he's become a policy director for the Giffords, which is a uh, gun control group. I looked at his Twitter bio today. He lists himself as a gun violence prevention advocate. I'm not sure who wouldn't advocate to prevent gun violence. It's maybe a question of how you do it, but I think we're all opposed to gun violence. A former lobbyist for Michael Bloomberg's gun control group. This is a pretty hardcore anti-gun person who's been appointed as the director of ATF. His nomination, it, it, it has, and it was designed to send a message to the Biden base, the Democrat Party base, um, that, uh, that 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 this president and and therefore his administration are are anti-gun, uh, and they're going to do what they can over the next four years, and and I'm sure they hope beyond that to curtail the rights of citizens to defend themselves, their property, and their families, and it it is frightening, you know. Our founding fathers didn't just get back from a hunting trip, and that's what led to the passage of the Second Amendment. You know, it was passed in response to the revolution and what we had gone through with regard to that. And, you know, every desperate and tyrant Hitler, Stalin, Mao, 
Pol Pot, the first thing they do is they is they get rid of firearms, and then they can subjugate, uh, and it's it's it it's infuriating to me, and I see these leftists say, you know, modern day weapons weren't conceived at the time of the founding. Well, neither was a computer, neither was a television, but no one argues that the First Amendment doesn't uh, pertain to those. And then they say, well, if, if, if you're right and it's designed to prevent subjugation by a tyrant, those times are past because now, you know, they have jets and missiles and so forth and so on. And, and how are citizens going to stand up to that? And it lasts a matter of an hour or 30 minutes. Well, they seem to have forgotten what some pajama-wearing folks in Vietnam accomplished. And they seem to have forgotten what some turban-wearing folks in Afghanistan have accomplished in the last 20 years. Um, and and I, 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 I am troubled, deeply troubled, by the efforts to take away our Second Amendment rights. It is the amendment which protects all others. Not only does it protect all of us, but it gives us the ability to protect ourselves and our families. The, the right of self-defense is universal, and it is it can ne it should never be um, diminished. Um, if you can't protect your families and yourselves, you have nothing. You are at the mercy. It's law of the jungle, and you lose, is what it amounts to. Also, the Second Amendment is a statement by the founders of this nation as to where power resides. That's right. And Mao said it best, power comes from the barrel of a gun. And that may not be as nice as some of our friends on the left would uh, want, and it may not be as socially acceptable but it is absolutely the truth and it's I'm afraid I hope I'm wrong but I think it's going to become critical because I don't see things changing in terms of the law and order situation in this country anytime soon I think um, as we've seen the last few nights in Minneapolis um, and of course, what's been going on in Portland since last summer, the the mainstream media doesn't talk about. But uh, it's old news at this point. Right. But last night, and I think the night before, the police administration building in Portland was set on fire, with folks inside it, and the doors were blocked from the about from the outside to try to keep them from being able to leave when the building's on fire. And the national media doesn't care. Don't even run the story. They basically have had a riot there every night. And last summer, the leftists were saying, well, the reason there's unrest in Portland is because you have federal forces there protecting federal property, namely the federal courthouse. And so those troops were, well, I shouldn't say troops, but those federal officers were removed at some point. At some, uh, very quickly, they tried to burn the courthouse down again. Yeah. And they're going to continue to do it until they're made to stop. And, of course, most of the people that were arrested in the last summer's riots had the charges dismissed. And we don't hear about that. No. You know, they weren't made to plead. They, they weren't even made to do community service or things like that in exchange for dismissal. Just outright dismissed. That's the result of a number of left-wing district attorneys that have been elected across the country, often with funding from George Soros. That's right. And that's, that's continuing. And that's a big deal. Um, you know, it doesn't matter really, in a lot of ways, it takes a long time for things to trickle down from the national level, but the local level is much more instantaneous almost, and, and it affects more people, and it certainly it affects them quicker uh, than things that come down from on high in Washington. One other story that broke today, and, and I don't know that we can give it a lot of discussion tonight, but... Uh, the president announced a removal of uh, troops from Afghanistan by September 11th, which this year will be the 20th anniversary of 
we've certainly been there a long time. It's America's longest war. President Trump had proposed removing those troops by some time in May. Uh, there was pushback from Biden immediately about there about that, and now he's he's proposing to do it by September. Uh, and he's also sent a message to the forces there, or to the Taliban there. You know, hold out till September. We won't be here any longer. That's right. It seems like it's a it's a rough message to send. I have concerns about how this is going to end up. I, yeah, I do too. Um, and I, I, I I'm troubled. Um, I think on the one hand we probably should have come home. In, in total, uh, with, the, uh, with the death of bin Laden, um, Afghanistan is a dumpster fire, and it always has been, and it always will be. And you can't go in there and expect those folks to have um, U.S.-style constitutional republic or democracy, whatever you want to call it. Um, and, and it's a pipe dream to think that you can. I think... Um, I think President Trump was trying to leave, uh, and that was good. Biden says September, but as you've seen, there's been some talk among some members of the Democrat Party that uh, that would set women's rights in in Afghanistan back if we if our military was to leave. Um, that's not the purpose in uh, of our military. Uh, that's certainly not the purpose of them there. Um, I, I think it ought to be very rare for us to put our people in harm's way but when we do we ought to go in 100 percent get it over with get it over with quickly um you know and i'm i'm an advocate of doing it like the romans i mean you steamroll the place and the problem with that particularly in this age of the internet cell phone cameras and television and 24-hour news cycle is i'm not sure that in, in our modern world the american people really understand uh, what that would mean and the, the level of violence that are uh, we're capable of and that we should um, probably use um, and as a result we tend to fight like we did in Vietnam where we, we, we fight with at least one hand tied behind our back uh, and and that gets our people killed and we don't accomplish anything I mean what's the last war we won was that a rhetorical question? Well, sort of. I, I, I don't you, know. I uh, think you can make an argument that we we won the war in Vietnam in terms of military campaigns. So we, I think we, we lost the politics. We did. I, I think we achieved a lot of objectives in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, the issue is whether any of it's going to stick in the long run. Uh, also, do you call it a war? I, I don't know, but we certainly made under President Trump, incredible progress toward uh, eliminating ISIS. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, although we still have troops in Syria, and I, I don't know what our legal basis for being there is or how long we're going to stay there. And, and whose side are we on? Uh, and whose side do we want to be on? Um, you know, and, and you've got the Turks and the Russians, and they, they, they're, they're sort of scrapping and sparring as they've historically done over the, the Bosphorus and the Dardanelles and, and, and the warm water ports on the Black Sea and, and, and so forth. And, you know, they, they at times have some mutual interests and they'll put those um, uh, little efforts uh, aside. But, but by and large, they're sort of antagonists. Uh, and, and uh, you know, then you've got the, the Israelis. And, and, and I mean, I, I just I worry about Syria. I really do. I, I, we don't need to start a huge war in Syria we're backing up with our Middle East policy. The, the Trump administration was, I mean, they, they were uh, assisting peace efforts that were successful even in December after the election. And, you know, Biden's, he, he's signaled that he's going to do away with sanctions on Iran. Um, they don't have any cash as a result of those sanctions, and therefore... Uh, we were able to put pressure on them to not do some things and so forth, and he signaled he's going to relax the sanctions, um, and they're getting frisky, and 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 they're having their um, puppet government in, I guess it's Yemen, trying to pick a fight or a war with Saudi Arabia. Uh, it's just a powder keg, and it it's troubling. 
It's a troubled region. It's going to stay that way, unfortunately. Uh, well, we've covered a lot tonight. Anything on your list you're looking forward to over the next week? No, I don't think so. Um, I, uh, I I will be interested to see how this Supreme Court commission plays out, whether it, it, it will kind of go by the wayside and there'll be some report and that'll be the end of it or whether there will be a meaningful effort to, to change the, the court in, in, a, in a substantive fashion. That won't, obviously won't be done this week, but um, over the next six months, I, I think that'll be an interesting thing to keep an eye on. And then, of course, and I, I haven't been keeping up with the day-to-day, but the, the George Floyd murder trial uh, in Minneapolis, coupled with the events of this weekend and the riots that have been occurring, uh, I, 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 I fear... Um, the violence in that in that city and in other cities is going to increase as we move towards summer and into into the remainder of the of the year. And just with that trial, it, it I haven't followed it closely, but I have seen that there are I think there are strong arguments on both sides. I don't know which way it's right. going to come out. I don't either. And I, I think the jury could come either way. Yeah, and and I you know I do know that. I guess it was Monday. The judge refused to sequester the jury. So if you're, if you're the defense, you're worried very much that the jurors are watching the violence and the riots and are fearing uh, what may happen if they were to acquit or convict of some lesser charge. Um, the New York Times has essentially doxed the members of the jury panel, uh, so folks know who they are. Um, I saw that the uh, one of the city council members from the Brooklyn Center who voted uh, to, um, I guess, accept the resignation of the mayor or, or the city manager or fire him or whatever whatever happened said that he was a he was a, 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 a very good at his job and had 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 done well and and was an asset to the city. But she was afraid if she voted to keep him that 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 she would be subject to retaliation. Yeah, physically, um, and, and and you know, so I, I, I'm um, not as optimistic about things as I as I once was in this world. Okay, but on another thing, another level, the Red Sox uh, they seem su- to be turning their season around, surprising a lot of people with uh, a number of wins in recent days. Uh, so uh, things are not all bad. They won a seven-inning game this afternoon, and last time I looked, they were ahead this uh, tonight. And uh, another seven-inning game. We'll have to discuss seven innings at some point. We we will indeed. I, I, but I, I did see right before I turned the computer on, they were ahead. I think it was two to nothing. Well, um, you've been listening to another episode of the Let's Think podcast, where we don't just react; we break it down and think about it. We appreciate your listening today. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please click subscribe. And give us a five-star review if you're happy with us. Thanks.